You're listening to the Clean Water Made Easy podcast, episode number eight. Hello, thanks for tuning in again to the Clean Water Made Easy podcast. Jerry Bolfin here. I'm a water treatment contractor and WQA certified master water specialist. I hope you're having a good day. Everything's going great in your neck of the woods. In this series, you can learn useful, easy to follow tips and information all about well water, well water treatment systems, and how to improve the quality of your well water. In today's episode, I'm going to talk all about home chlorination systems, why you might want to use a chlorinator, how chlorinators compare with other types of systems such as UV, ozone, and hydrogen peroxide, as well as different types of chlorinators and questions to ask yourself when setting one up. We're going to talk about solid chlorine pellet feeders versus liquid bleach feeders and how to install it so you're not drinking or bathing in water with chlorine in it. I have a free resource guide, an actual little book uh, that goes really well with this. Today's podcast called The Complete Guide to Home Chlorination Systems for Well Water. This is an easy to follow guide. It's one of our more popular guides and it has uh, pictures, diagrams, charts, makes it very easy to figure out what's going on and how to set up a chlorinator. I'm offering this free to listeners of the podcast and you can get your guide by texting the word chlorine to 44222 or you can go to cleanwaterstore.com forward slash podcast and look for it there. Um, but if you want to make it easy, just dial text 44222 and put the word chlorine, that's C-H-L-O-R-I-N-E, and then we'll get that going to you. So you might want to consider a chlorinator if your water is high in iron, manganese, sulfur odor, especially if you have a combination of those, uh, as a pretreatment to, to your filtration. Uh, you might want to consider a chlorinator if your water has coliform bacteria in it. For example, say you have a shallow well that's under the influence of surface water and you can't fix that. Or you have a cistern fed by rainwater. Uh, or you may have iron bacteria or sulfate reducing bacteria, uh, slime bacteria. Uh, chlorinators are good for that. But a lot of folks will say, well, hey, why not? ultraviolet sterilizers, UV sterilizers, or how about ozone, or how about peroxide? Um, you know, a lot of folks want to avoid chlorine for good reason. Generally, it's not a good idea to drink chlorinated water, although certainly millions of people do every day with very few long-term effects. But, you know, generally, you, you on your own well, you, you don't want to add chlorine and drink it. So people say, hey, you know, what's a good alternative to chlorination? Well, UV is good. We do recommend it. Many customers for many years successfully using uh, UV light. Uh, however, the water must be, for UV, it must be fairly low in minerals. It has to be clear or pure enough so that the UV rays can penetrate the water so it can properly do disinfection. So if you have water high in iron, manganese, and odors, you can't, UV won't really, isn't really appropriate. Um, unless you filter it all first and soften it, then you can use the EV at the end if you want to kill bacteria. Uh, but particularly with odors, chlorination works better than UV. Also, ozone is really great. 
Ozone is actually a much more powerful oxidizer than chlorine. However, and we've used ozone since, gosh, 1989. We put in hundreds of ozone systems. And the thing is that the you've got a situation where the ozone is, is comp complicated. It's way more expensive than a chlorinator. Uh, and there's little more to it in terms of setting it up and mainly it's cost, but ozone, if it was the same cost or simple to deal with, ozone would be better than chlorine for many applications. Okay. Another one that's getting really popular lately is hydrogen peroxide. You know, maybe when you're a kid, your mom would put hydrogen peroxide on your cuts to, to sanitize and clean your cut or bruises. Some people think, gee, it must be a great, uh, disinfectant for water. Well, actually, it's not really considered a good disinfectant for drinking water, especially well water, especially residential wellers. Hydrogen peroxide is actually rarely used in drinking water treatment as a standalone treatment process. It's a very weak biocide compared to chlorine or ozone. It's not approved by regulatory agencies as a standalone disinfection treatment process. So hydrogen peroxide is great for removing odors and it does have a good place in in water treatment but it's not good for killing bacteria so you wouldn't want to use it as a disinfectant there's other ways to use it if you combine it with uv or ozone then you get uh, a very powerful disinfectant because hydroxyl radicals are created that's a whole different subject more complicated system but just standalone hydrogen peroxide versus chlorine if you're after killing bacteria and oxidizing iron, then chlorine generally is better. Okay, so again, getting back to it, water used for drinking and cooking should be free of odor, slime producing bacteria and pathogenic organisms. So although there are different methods out there, chlorination is the most common one used. The reason it's cheap and it's effective. So while chlorination is effective against many bacteria, at the normal rates that we're using it, you want to use as little as possible to do the job. It doesn't kill all like cysts or uh, parasites. So often it's combined with filtration. So usually there's chlorination, chlorine is injected, and you have a certain amount of contact time, and then you got filtration. That's the best way to use it. One question we get often is, isn't chlorine bad? I don't want chlorine. I moved to the country. I've got great water. Uh, doesn't have chemicals in it. I don't want to add chlorine. And agreed, no one generally wants to drink or bathe in chlorinated water. Fortunately, chlorine is easy to remove from water with activated carbon. So a typical system would be to use a, uh, some way to get the chlorine into the water, say a pellet feeder or a uh, pump, a little diaphragm pump, and injecting liquid bleach, and then the water flows into a contact tank to allow time for the chlorine to oxidize the iron, manganese, odor, or bacteria that's in the water. And then there's just after that, just a slight residual. Then you can use a carbon filter to remove it before going in the home. That, that's, the, that's the safest and best way to use it. The goal is to add enough chlorine and have sufficient contact time. So you have, uh, in some cases, what's called breakpoint chlorination, where you have add enough chlorine so that there's, it's done its job and there's a tiny bit left over as a uh, 
a free chlorine. And you can measure that. And that's how, and that's indeed what our customers do. They, they measure the free chlorine so that after the, the, the contact tank, there's a little tiny bit, say 0.2 to 1.0 milligram per liter of chlorine left in the water. Then it goes through the uh, carbon tank and it just scrubs it, removes all the chlorine. Then you have clean, disinfected water. Okay, so that basically that's just again to recap it. Chlorination is proven to be very popular because it's easy to set up, it's low cost, it's simple, and it's easy to check the residual. And it's easy to remove too. Okay, so questions to ask yourself when choosing a chlorinator. One more important one is, have I had my water tested? It's really important to have a general mineral analysis of your water. You want to know what the pH is. Is nitrate or nitrite present? That can affect the chlorination process. Um, and, and with pH, if your water is has a very high pH, say it's 8 or 8.5, you know, pH is a scale of um, less than 7 is acidic and 7 being neutral, over 7 is alkaline. So the higher your pH, chlorine becomes very ineffective. So if you have very high pH water, you have to add so much chlorine to the water that it's not practical. So that's one thing to check. Um, what, the other thing you'd want to know is what's the flow rate of the water? How many gallons per minute is the water flowing? So on a typical system, for instance, that for home residential well systems, folks will have a submersible well pump in the, in the well and then it pumps up and then there's a pressure tank, a hydrogenatic pressure tank with a diaphragm or a bladder inside it. And that, that keeps, allows the pump to turn on at say 40 PSI and off at 60 PSI. Um, so some folks have a variable speed well pump as well. But if you have a standard well pump, when it turns on at one, uh, at a low setting off at a higher setting, then you can install a chlorinator on the point, the injection point of the chlorinator at that point between the well pump and the pressure tank because the flow is there is pretty much the same all the time. The idea is with a standard chlorine system, you want to inject it into a flow rate that you know is flowing at the same amount. That way you can make sure you get the right amount injected every time. So you want to know the flow rate of your well. The other thing is you want to think about how much contact time do I need? And do I even need a contact tank? We'll talk about that in a minute. Generally you do, but um, it's, you want to you think of how big a contact tank do I need after the chlorine has been injected. You want the water to have a certain amount of time so that it can do its job. So what's the line pressure? Another good question. What Most people, this isn't a big concern because uh, usually it's less than 100 PSI, but um, you want to know going in what, what's, what pressure I have. Okay, so once you get those questions answered or you have that information, one thing to consider is should I get a solid pellet chlorinator or should I get a liquid chlorinator? Solid pellet chlorinators use calcium hypochlorite. It's uh, uh, usually it's 65, 70% chlorine, very, very strong oxidizer. They have some advantage. Sometimes the um, People will put uh, pellet feeders on the top of their well, so when their well pump turns on, it drops a pellet down the well. And <clears throat> this sounds good, 
could be good if it was set up correctly, but a lot of times there's, there's a lot of trouble because, you know, if you just put it on, put a pellet feeder on top of your well, you don't really know your well, what's going on in your well. You don't really know where the pellets are ending up. You could experiment with it and drop a pellet down in there and just see how it's working. But a lot of times they, they either overfeed, there's too much, too many pellets, they cause trouble with the pump. Generally, well drillers, well contractors really don't like the and tell people to avoid them because they've seen so many problems with them. But they, it is you know one way to go about it. Its advantage is you don't have the liquid bleach to deal with. You don't have to pour anything. It's dry pellets, and it's fairly automatic. Um, but you'd have like again, you'd have to know, make sure that you're that if you did use a pellet feeder that it would that it would be able to drop the pellet down to where it's going to do good. Like for instance, say your well is very deep, but your well pump, you say your well is 400 feet deep, but your pump is at 300 foot. If you drop a pellet down there, it goes all the way to the bottom. You're going to have uh, body residuals. In other words, you're not going to have a, a steady, even chlorine residual that you can easily adjust. Pellet, pellet feeders, both the wellhead type and the inline ones where the water is, it's like a canister where the water flows through it and adds a little bit of chlorine that way. These type of feeders are very hard to adjust to get a very even consistent rate. Usually it's feeding too much chlorine or uh, not enough or it varies. Sometimes there's not, sometimes there's not that much. All of a sudden you get boom, a boost of chlorine. So they're not the best as far as for homes. They're the inline ones are less expensive than the um, ones that use a pump with bleach, which we'll talk about next, but the um, they're not as good. Basically, they're a little harder to operate as far as getting a, 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 a chlorine. And the goal is, is that the chlorine residual you want is you just want a very tiny amount that's, that'll do the job. So you want to be able to check it. It's very easy to test chlorine with a chlorine test kit, just like you'd if you had a hot tub or pool. You check the chlorine residual every week. You can do the same thing if you have a home coronator. So the one we usually recommend is a liquid bleach using a metering pump. A metering pump meters in a certain amount of chlorine at a very precise rate. Uh, they're also called diaphragm pumps or solenoid pumps. And so these, these pumps pump in a small amount of bleach into the water when the water's running. And that's how they work. So they they basically there's a solution tank where you pour in bleach either straight bleach or diluted bleach like bleach with some pure or soft water to mix it and then when the well pump turns on the medium pump turns on too and pumps in a tiny bit of chlorine into the water as the water is flowing so medium pumps are rated by how much solution they can pump and they come in various sizes so for instance uh, common size for home chlorination system are ones that can pump one gallon per hour or 24 gallons a day. Some are also might pump 10 gallons per day or 12 gallons per day. They're all rated at different and they're, and the pumps are adjustable. So you can adjust the amount of chlorine that it's putting in, which indeed you do have to adjust it. Typically on these uh, liquid bleach pumps, there's also a degassing valve to get rid of any gases that might form in the in the in the pipe and when it's being pumped. So um, another type of 
uh, metering pump is a uh, what's called a peristaltic pump. It's a squeezes a tube. Um, those we used to use more of, but the tubes would constantly fail. That was just our experience. I know there's some really good ones on the market. We still do sell them, but they're we the the metering pumps, the the solenoid pumps or metering pumps um, that have a diaphragm are generally if if they are set up correctly, they're less trouble than the less maintenance than the than the peristaltic pump. That's what we we found. Anyways, but there's the two different kinds. Basically, you get a diaphragm pump or a peristaltic pump, and they're set up so that generally. When the um, pump, the well turns on, it puts in a, a tiny bit of chlorine in the water, and that's how they work. So you have to figure out how much chlorine to add to the water. That is when you're estimating the chlorine demand in the water. Because when chlorine is added to the water, it not only reacts with bacteria, but also with other impurities such as hydrogen sulfide, soluble metals, iron manganese, particles, organic matter, micro or other microorganisms. So the chlorine demand first must be satisfied before a residual chlorine concentration can be established. Once there is residual chlorine concentration, it must be maintained during the required contact time to kill all the bacteria. So to adequately disinfect water, it's required to supply the water with a higher chlorine concentration than the concentration required to kill the bacteria. So basically you're if you're after disinfection as well as um, treating for iron, manganese, and odor, you've got to add enough chlorine to, to counteract the, the, an oxidized iron, manganese, hydrogen sulfide first so you can have disinfection. So there's general rule of thumb. Uh, for iron, we generally try to go for somewhere between 0.6 to 1 part per million of chlorine for every one part per million of iron. If it's manganese, for every uh, one milligram per liter of manganese, we're looking at two parts per million of chlorine. Uh, with hydrogen sulfide, we generally, for every one part per million of hydrogen sulfide, we, we try to inject two to three parts per million of chlorine. And for iron, manganese, hydrogen sulfide, for contact time, you're looking for a two to six minutes is good. For bacteria, you want six to ten minutes. So if you if you really do have a, and I talk about this in the other episodes, but if you have a problem with your well where there is coliform bacteria, first you need to find out what's the source of it. Why am I having this problem? To try to stop it at the source. If you have a shallow well or you have a cistern with water coming from the roof or or even a spring, then that's impossible. So you know you're going to have bacteria. So in order to set up properly, you need to be very conservative with the contact time. Make sure you have plenty of contact time so the bact and then a chlorine residual at the end of it so that you know you've got disinfection. So there is a way to calculate the chlorine demand, um, but you can also, because you can measure for free chlorine, you can go ahead and get the system set up, do your estimations, and then test for, for free chlorine afterwards. Now, now without getting too complicated or uh, chemistry-wise, but there is such a thing as a false free chlorine residual. So if you have high ammonia or high, high nitrate tied in the water as well, then you can get a problem with, with uh, the, the chlorine interacting with the ammonia. And so you just have to know that going in. That's why it's good to do a water test up front, especially if you're in an agricultural area, a lot of farming around. So, 
but generally it's very simple to do. So you just setting setting up your chlorination, got your contact tank, and then you measure chlorine residual afterwards. And this this there a lot of this chemistry is discussed in the guide as well that I was talking about. So the again the uh, talked about this already, but pH is very effective, very important. It's most effective at a pH of range of 6 to 7.5. Also, the warmer the water, the more effective it is. Colder water requires longer contact times and higher concentrations of chlorine. All right, so after you've determined the flow rate and you've sized your contact tank, um, generally based on how many minutes you need, so uh, for instance, um, say you need 10 minutes. If you had a, a completely properly baffled contact tank, then theoretically you'd need 100 gallons of contact time. If you had 10 gallons a minute, to get 10 minutes. So oftentimes it's good to oversize those because usually the contact tanks aren't baffled and you can only get re realize a percentage of the contact tank as uh, proper contact time. Again, especially if you're after disinfection where it's related to your health. So for coliform, E. coli, that type of thing, the contact tank is important. Okay, so very common thing that comes up is people, okay, I'm going to do a chlorinator, but how, do I, how does it turn on and off? I, I want to set it up automatically so it puts in the right amount. Well, there's three ways to do it. Basically, option one is the most simplest way, and that is you have a standard submersible well pump or if you have, you can have a booster pump too on a pressure tank, but it's a it's a type that turns on at one pressure and off at another. So in other words, you, the the well pump is not a variable speed well pump. It's just a standard single speed. They're still the most common, although the constant pressure um, variable speed pumps are certainly getting more popular. But um, you have a standard system. So then what you can do is you can just get a 220 volt uh, chlorinator pump. 220 volt metering pump and wire it so that your when your well pump turns on your chlorinator turns on that's very simple to do and so every time it's running it's injecting the chlorine now you could have a situation with that where if your well pump failed but it was still getting power it could pump the whole tank of chlorine into the water into the into your pipe that's pretty unusual i mean it's very random, not likely to happen, but that's one disadvantage of that method. Uh, it's not full, not, you know, 100% foolproof, but it is very easy to set up. It's very reliable. Sometimes you need an electrician to do, to deal with it, especially for, to comply with local codes, or if you don't know how to do basic wiring. Uh, but that is an easy and relatively low cost way to do it. The other way to do it, which is very popular, is to get a pre-wired flow switch. So a flow switch is put into the pipe at the place in between the well pump and the pressure tank. And then whenever there's flow, it <clears throat> which will be mostly the same all the time, um, whenever, whenever the flow switch sees flow, then it just turns on the metering pump that way. So the flow switches, pre-wired, have a, a receptacle on them that you can plug your, your chlorinator pump into and then the flow switch has its own cord and plugs into the wall. And that's a, for a 110 setup. So that way a plumber can do it, or if you're familiar with plumbing, but you don't want to mess around with electrical, that's a very easy way to get around having to deal with the electrical. Just get a pre-wired flow switch. 
You can even get ones that aren't pre-wired, which are lower cost, and just wire it yourself. That The other thing with flow switches is that then you do have some safety. If there's no flow, the chlorinator's not going to run. The downside of the flow switch is that if your water's real mucky, has iron, sediment, sand, and other material in it, then it's it you have to clean the flow switch. It gets it can get stuck or it can but generally there's some really good flow switches out there and they're very reliable. So but that's there's a little bit of maintenance involved with those. Okay, the third way is to do use a proportional feed flow meter where the the metering pump is controlled by the speed of the water. So what happens there is that say you have a variable speed submersible pump. So in other words, the, the, the more you use the water in the house in order to maintain a constant pressure, you get more or less flow. Or say you have a well pump and a pressure tank and you have an orchard or garden or outside irrigation and you don't really want to chlorinate all the water for the outside or any of the water for the outside. You just want to chlorinate it at the house. So in that case, or say you're on a mutual water company or a community system and you don't, no one else wants to chlorinate, only you. What you can do is, right before it goes in the house or anywhere after the pressure tank, you can get a, uh, a, a what looks like a water meter or a flow sensor. And when, when water flows through there, it starts to trigger the, the proportional feed metering pump. It's a different kind of metering pump. It's, they look the same, but it, it can accept a signal. So what happens is that it pumps more or less based on how fast your water is moving. They're really easy to set up, too. You just put put the flow meter there, attach the wires, plug it in, run some adjustments on it. It's They're very easy. There's no, just about like the, the, the flow switch. There's not wiring involved. It's all plugs into the wall. So it's just the medium pump stays plugged in the wall. As soon as there's flow, more or less, it, it pumps faster or slower to keep your chlorine residual where you want it. So in the guide, we talk about how to determine your chlorine solution strength and metering pump size. But basically, there's a simple formula. I'll just run it past, run it by you really quickly past here. But basically, you, you start out with your flow rate. And you start out, and then you, you want to know your applied chlorine residual that you're applying to the water. And you multiply that times 1,440. This is minutes in a day. And you divide it by the solution strength. So as an example, Say you had 12 gallons per minute, that your your well pump's producing 12 gallons a minute. 12, and you want to inject three parts per million. So 12 times three times 1,440, and you divide that by the solution strength. Say you have a solution strength of 25,000 parts per million. Like say if you're using household bleach, that's 50,000 parts per million. So say you diluted it by half, 25,000, you end up with two gallons per day. 2.07 gallons per day. So bringing this up, not to just, you don't have to memorize the formula or anything, but right now, but the point is that you end up with a, with a simple formula, you end up, you end up with a, a, a figure of how many gallons per day, if your well pump were to run 24 hours, how many, how much chlorine solution would it pump? So then you pick a metering pump or you adjust your existing metering pump so it puts out that amount. So, for instance, say you, you did need a medium pump that had a, a two gallons per day, you can adjust your medium pump down so it puts out only that rate. 
I mean, your well pump might only run for half an hour a day or an hour a day. So, and if you're using, say, two gallons of chlorine every 24 hours, you, you can figure you're not going to use a lot of chlorine. And in fact, most folks don't use that much chlorine solution. So another point is you don't want to fill up your chlorine tank with a, a lot of chlorine solution. Think it's going to last a year. You want, you, you want to add fresh chlorine to it every few months. If it's warm, really hot weather, maybe even every month. So you only add a little bit in there and add it frequently because it, it breaks down. It doesn't last that long. Okay, well, this is kind of a longer than normal um, episode, but hope that was useful to you. We covered the basics of uh, how chlorinators work, uh, the advantages of it, touched on a little bit about comparison to UV, ozone, and peroxide systems, and emphasize that it's very important to know the basics. Test your water first, check your flow rate, estimate your chlorine demand, and then figure out if you're using a chlorinator pump, a medium pump, how you will turn your pump on and off. So again, if you want that guide, just text the word chlorine, C-H-L-O-R-I-N-E, to 44222. Or you can go to the cleanwaterstore.com slash podcast website and download it there. All right, next week we're going to be talking about water softeners. Why would I want a water softener? Or maybe I have a water softener already. I don't like the salt. What about those no salt water softeners? We'll explore all that. And thanks again for listening. Have a good day.